Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture, and thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We appreciate it. Here on our program today, we're going to talk with Liz Wagstrom, Chief Veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council. Livestock industry very happy with some uh, funding, some purchases for the Vaccine Bank. And we will tell you more about that, get some details a little bit later on, why that is so important uh, for protecting our food supply in this country. So Liz Wagstrom, National Pork Producers Council Chief Veterinarian, will be joining us on the program today. Also, the latest on... The trade issues between the U.S. and China, just how serious are they? How likely is China to continue to buy and get anywhere even close to the levels of purchases called for in the Phase 1 trade deal? What about uh, the the rhetoric between the two countries that's uh, not very positive much of the time? Does that threaten the deal? And if so, how much? What's being uh, said behind the scenes? between the companies that are doing actually doing the business between the two countries. We're going to talk with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. And we'll be talking some markets today with Joe Camp, Manager of AgriVisor. All that coming up on today's program. First couple news items, as you may have heard by now, American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall has tested positive for the coronavirus. So, um... We certainly keep him and everyone affected by this virus in our thoughts and prayers. And also news from the U.S. Apple Association. They are very happy that USDA is now considering apples to be part of CFAP. Remember, originally, apples were one of the commodities not included in the CFAP program. We've had Jim Baer president and CEO of the U.S. Apple on with us. In fact, just a few days ago, talking about their efforts to get into the program. They felt they had a strong case to make, and we talked earlier this week with Richard Fordyce, who is the administrator of FSA. He said those decisions would be coming. He said it might be two to three weeks. Well, it turned out to be two to three days for the Apple industry, as now apples will be part of CFAP and awarded a payment of five cents per pound. So we'll be getting details on that coming up on tomorrow's program as uh, more commodities are being brought into the CFAP program. And as we've heard, uh, they are a little over $5 billion that have been sent out in that program so far. All right, we're going to start things off today with Steve Meyer, economist with Kearns and Associates. Steve has been keeping us up to date on the pork packing uh, situation. Where are we as far as uh, getting back to normal and working through the backlog of hogs that we have? Steve, good to have you with us. Uh, What's the latest? Well, the latest data we have, and we've gone from daily surveys on this down to weekly surveys, Mike, uh, just hadn't been changing much. And uh, last Thursday was the latest data we gathered. We had 7.1% of packing capacity that was still idled. Now, that number is inflated a bit because of a shutdown of uh, Smithfield's Gwaltney, Virginia plant for some remodeling. Uh, It's going to be closed through the 11th. And so... That's putting about a percent and a half onto the number that is not coronavirus related. Um, so that puts us at the five and a half percent, roughly, uh, range of idle capacity. And, you know, as we've talked on, on your show and in other venues uh, of the last few weeks, 
uh, we'll be surprised if we get much above 95% on this. We think we're, we're that's about as good as we're going to get. Um, and um, we'll see kind of how that show, uh, that shakes out. But if you look at a, a time graph of this, um, you know, we went down from 39 40% back in early May and dropped rapidly, and now we're just kind of flattening out right about the 5% level. And what about that backlog of hogs? Well, we still think there's a bunch of them out there. USDA's Hogs and Pigs Report that came out last week said that our categories, our, our inventories of 180-pound and over animals were up about 12, almost 13 percent. Uh, the 120 to 179s were up almost 12. That was kind of a surprise. That suggests to us that not only are producers holding those animals that are market ready, they're they're actually slowing down other animals. And when we put those into uh, you know a context of year-over-year changes. Uh, we don't think there's any way we can get all those animals slaughtered here in the short run. I think there's about a million, maybe a sh- roughly two million, a short two million uh, that are still backed up. We've gained on it the last three or four weeks. Uh, of course, we didn't gain much last week because of a holiday. Uh, we're going to gain on it for a couple more weeks, but uh, I think it's likely we're going to kind of stabilize that at about a million five or so. And then we're going to get into a situation where we've got as many current hogs as we have, uh, as we can handle. And so um, I still think that we have to make some space for those hogs that are being held. Uh, that probably is going to result in some euthanasia of younger pigs. Um, uh, that, that, will, that will have an impact on our supply of animals. Now you're in July now, so it's not going to really hit until January. Uh, but if you look at USDA's numbers and if you look at my projections uh, for the fall, I'm not sure we can get all the fourth quarter pigs slaughtered given the capacity we have either. So we may have to push some hogs back into that January time period. And um, I, I can't, still can't get around having extra hogs that we can't get slaughtered. Now, we're hearing anecdotal information out there of packers that are, you know, kind of interested in cash hogs and not, not really chasing those hogs, but they're certainly buying some outside pigs. And so that, that tells me that we got now, maybe not as many available, but the math, uh, <laughs> you, know, you don't just vanish them into thin air, and I think they were there in March, and if they were there in March, and, and USDA says there's still a lot of them there on June 1, too. So um, we're very concerned that we still have more hogs than we can process. I was going to say, you, you back up and back up, and, I mean, you, you hit a wall eventually, right? You can only back up so much. Well, well, that's what I think. I mean, we've been holding these hogs for some time, and we've been doing it very effectively. So we haven't euthanized market hogs, very many at all, since early on. Uh, there was a time there we had three or 400,000 of them that got destroyed, and then we figured out these hold diets. But the, the hold diets, okay, the pigs don't get too heavy, but they're still occupying a barn, and you've got animals coming behind them. And, and, of course, early on, we also double and triple stocked. And so those barns have to have some relief now. And so you either have to get those pigs out of the way or you have to get the pigs coming behind them out of the way. So there's a flow here that you just don't throw a roadblock in and do it without consequence. And uh, that's the reason we think that there's probably going to have to be some more pigs euthanized here if we're going to hold these market-ready pigs, which we've done a very effective job of, I mean, uh, market weights were actually a pound lower last week than they were a year ago. Um, so um, we've done very well on that. We haven't had a weight problem on these animals, 
but I still think we have a numbers problem. All right, Steve. Thanks, as always, for the update. We'll stay in touch. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Mike. Good day. Take care. Steve Meyer, economist with Kearns & Associates. Up next, we'll talk with the chief veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council. Pork industry, the livestock industry, very happy with USDA's first significant vaccine purchase for the vaccine bank. We'll tell you about that next on AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. If you remember in the writing of the last farm bill, a very key part of the farm bill was the establishment of a vaccine bank. Well, now USDA has announced a purchase of um, a very important vaccine for that vaccine bank. And here to talk about it is Liz Wagstrom, Chief Veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council. Liz, thank you for joining us. Tell us about this purchase. Good morning, Mike. We're really, really excited about this. Um, If you recall, the Farm Bill had three programs that were in it together, the National Animal Health Laboratory Network, something called NADPREP, which is the National Animal Disease Prevention and Response, and then the Vaccine Bank. And so there have been um, funds already distributed in those first two programs that have been very helpful, but it has taken a while for USDA to go through all of the effort with um, a sources sought notice and then a request for proposals. And yesterday they announced a $27 million purchase of an initial purchase to start stocking a United States foot and mouth disease vaccine bank. So $27 million sounds like a lot of money, and it is, of course, but uh, so much more is needed. How significant is this? the size of this purchase? This is going to be really helpful. And, you know, we are hoping that in subsequent years they will um, make additional purchases. Um, and, and we know that they put together a group of experts to decide which serotypes they should prioritize. And, um, you know, they went after those top priority ones first, and then we'll continue to fill in, hopefully, behind them. Yeah. And to kind of put that figure in perspective, what's give us an idea of the potential losses we, we would see if there was an outbreak of foot and mouth disease in this country. Uh, if they would be significant, we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars, and that's because our um, our trade would shut down immediately on all cloven-hoofed animals. So anything coming from beef cattle, sheep, or pigs would be, um, trade would stop, and there may even be concerns over trade in milk and cheese products. And so um, losing all of that trade would be a tremendous loss to animal agriculture. That's why this is so important. We're talking with Liz Wagstrom, Chief Veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council. Liz, what do you hope will be the next step in stocking this vaccine bank? So there's multiple next steps. One, of course, is to continue to fund all three programs and work on on our laboratory network as well as as the vaccine bank. And so the vaccine bank, um, we've got uh, we had 150 million in the uh, farm bill for the life of the farm bill. We'll be working on the next farm bill to assure that there is funding in there. And then additionally, in the um, 
HEROES Act, which passed the um, House and now in a uh, bill that Senator Inhofe has introduced into the Senate, there are provisions to, um, for additional funding for all three of those programs as well. So additional for the vaccine bank as well as our laboratory network and then the preparedness and prevention response grants. Um, and that's really important because not only is vaccine important, but if we look at how our animal health laboratory network has contributed to the public health efforts around COVID-19, um, they've been a very important partner to public health in in addressing the pandemic. Hopefully, we'll not have to ever find out, but if there is a, an outbreak like foot and mouth disease, how would the what's the procedures in place for accessing these vaccines in the vaccine bank? Yep, great, really good question. So the vaccine is banked is what's called a uh, a concentrated antigen. So kind of think of it like orange juice concentrate, and it will be kept at you know very cold temperatures. And at the point in time that a outbreak would be identified and the serotype would be identified that vaccine concentrates taken out of the bank and um, and uh, mixed up with, with adjuvant so that you actually have a product that is vaccine ready to inject. And then USDA and the state veterinarians would determine the priority of um, where and what to vaccinate depending on if they're going to try to do a, a circle vaccine around an outbreak or, or if they're going to go with another strategy. And then that's where the National Veterinary Stockpile comes in to be able to deliver um, not only the vaccine that's been put um, put together, but also things like protective gear and syringes and needles and and ear tags, things that would be needed to identify to deliver the vaccine and then identify the vaccinated animals. Liz, with all that's going on with COVID nineteen, uh, we've not talked nearly as much about African swine fever, the ongoing efforts to keep it out of the United States. What can you tell us about African swine fever in China and other countries and the ongoing efforts to keep it out of the U.S.? Yep, African swine fever does continue to spread uh, globally. We do know that um, we have concerns. I I just heard a a piece of an um, interview you did with Andrew Bailey. We have concerns to continue funding Customs and Border Protection they are um, key to our, our success in keeping it out. And, of course, with um, the user fees going down due to lack of international travel, um, we have a shortfall fall in their budget. So that's a big concern. We continue to see um, ongoing research as far as looking at potential risk of imported feed ingredients and potential mitigation for those, and that I think would be more on the industry level to take uh, steps to put those mitigations into place. So it's still um, still a top priority. We haven't forgotten it during COVID. Um, we hopefully are at a little less risk because of the lack of international travels uh, travelers, but we still have to be vigilant. Still no vaccine? There's uh, no vaccine close to commercial yet. There are vaccine candidates, both um, being studied in Europe as well as the United States and China. And, um, well, each of those may have um, positives. They also may have drawbacks. So we have to just study and say, are they effective at blocking infection? And then what would trading partners, 
how would they handle collect or uh, purchasing product from vaccinated animals? And would that be a trade um, disrupting practice or would that truly be a protective practice? So there's lots of variables in, in how a vaccine may be beneficial and how it could be used. So if and when uh, a African swine fever vaccine is developed, would it then go into the vaccine bank? It could, and that's one of the nice things about the vaccine bank language. It just talked about um, animal vaccines and veterinary countermeasures. So it did not specify only foot and mouth disease vaccine. It did prioritize foot and mouth disease vaccine, but other foreign animal disease vaccines could also be part of that vaccine bank for a multitude of species. Hey, you mentioned the inspection uh, system, why that is so important. We've talked a lot about the funding for it being so critical. That really is our our first line of defense, isn't it? Absolutely. And if you look just recently, they, uh, there was another announcement of product that was seized in California ports that um, was clearly trying to be smuggled in that included some pork products. Um, we know that in talking with Customs and Border Protection, one of the things they've done is taken some of the beagles that normally would work airports and started working some of the express carrier and mail facilities and also collecting or getting some nice interdictions of products that were coming in either via mail or express carriers. So even though airline traffic is down, they continue to work the beagles and they continue to work to protect U.S. agriculture. Well, again, this is a big announcement, uh, this uh, purchase for the foot and mouth disease vaccine for the vaccine bank. I think one thing COVID-19 has taught us all, the importance of vaccines and access to them. Um, and so we want to keep people aware of the importance of having them for animals because it's so critical to our, our nation's food supply. Absolutely. And we're, we're so pleased that USDA made that purchase. And we look forward to future purchases. Very good. Liz, good to talk with you again. Take care. Thank you, Mike. Liz Wagstrom, Chief Veterinarian for the National Pork Producers Council. Well, up next, the latest on what's going on between the U.S. and China on trade. Where are they in uh, fulfilling their Phase 1 trade deal obligations? How close may they get to those numbers on ag products? What else is going on overall, though, kind of behind the scenes? We're going to talk with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President for the U.S.-China Business Council. What are business people saying about the trading relationships between the two countries? And what are the prospects moving forward in the latter half of 2020. We'll get the latest on that next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Let's get an update on ongoing trade issues between the U.S. and China. Glad to have with us Jake Parker, Senior Vice President, U.S.-China Business Council. Jake, good to talk with you again. What's your assessment of where we're at uh, in Phase 1 of the trade deal? 
So what we hear from USTR directly is that phase one is going pretty well, particularly on some of the structural adjustments. That means the openings in financial markets, uh, some of the restrictions in imports from China of agricultural products. Those things are going in the right direction. Where there is some concern at the moment is the amount of purchases that China is making of American agriculture, manufactured, and energy products. And, and I think what, what folks in the U.S. government would like to see is a big uptick in those numbers uh, in the coming weeks and months to, to show the president and the administration that China's making progress in that area. Yeah, and many analysts that we talk to don't think they're going to get to the number in the uh, trade uh, deal, but hope they get somewhat close. Uh, what are your thoughts as we head in? The, we're in the second half of the year now. This is when it's expected that the purchases will pick up, but they'd have to pick up a lot to hit the, the, the figures in that deal. I'm a little more sanguine than maybe most analysts. Uh, the purchases piece of, of China's commitments are, frankly, the easiest part of, of the things that it can do on its side. Uh, however, there are certainly pieces of the purchase agreement that will be very difficult to meet uh, considering current, current market dynamics. For example, the current price of crude and natural gas will make it physically impossible for China to be able to meet its commitments based on the availability of product and, and the price. They, they could buy a ton of gas, but it's just not going to hit the numbers that it needs to. Um, to, to get across the line. However, in some of the agricultural products, if China expands some of the, the products that it purchases, maybe buying a little more corn ethanol, for example, that could certainly help push it over the line in areas that it has not been purchasing over the last couple of years. Yeah, we've been waiting on that, hoping to see some purchases. Are you hearing anything that would uh, make you think that those purchases could be coming of ethanol? Uh, not specifically on, on ethanol, but in some of our recent conversations with the Chinese governments, they, they have said that the coronavirus has inhibited some of their purchasing ability in the first half of the year, and they're expecting to accelerate those purchases in the coming months. They recognize as well that the U.S. administration is very focused on these numbers and that they need to be able to deliver on those. I, I think one inflection point that we should be looking at on the horizon is um, in next month, um, Ambassador Lighthizer will be meeting with Vice Premier Liu He for the first annual Principles Dialogue between the U.S. and China. That's going to be a real inflection point for both sides to be able to assess the progress on the deal, and I suspect we'll see some uptick between now and then. We're talking with Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Jake, when members of the administration make certain comments or there's reaction in China, uh, you know, about the trade deal and relations between the two countries. And not that long ago, we, we had the, the rumor that the deal was off or done. And then that was, you know, uh, put aside and said, no, uh, don't worry, it's still on. That gets a lot of headlines in the national media. On the ground, uh, what are you seeing? And behind the scenes, is that impacting trade between the two countries? I think what we're seeing is that there's a significant amount of rhetoric between the U.S. and China right now, particularly in the, the security and the strategic side of the relationship, what's happening in Hong Kong, what's happening in Xinjiang. That's sucking up a lot of the air out of the room. However, when we uh, are on the ground talking to Chinese government officials, talking to U.S. government officials, what they tell us is there's a realization that the economic relationship is the only ballast that's keeping the floor under a rapidly deteriorating bilateral relationship. 
relationship. So both sides want to see the economic track work, even if there's a, a much more antagonistic relationship overall and particularly in the strategic side. So I, I, I think we need to, to realize that the phase one agreement is something both sides are committed to and will likely continue to persist in the coming months. I say this all the time, but even if you have a trade deal with a country or countries, they are always a work in progress, right? I mean, nothing's for sure, even if you have something on paper. This is an unusually detailed and more certain trade agreement than perhaps some we've seen in the past. Some might call it even managed trade. Um, But the great thing about trade agreements, Mike, is that both sides can reevaluate as they go forward. And and this agreement has a dispute resolution mechanism process. So if either side thinks the other side isn't meeting it, then they can bring it to them directly. They can escalate and seek resolution. And if it doesn't work out, then, hey, we're, we're not any worse off than we were eight months ago. Beyond agricultural purchases, what are we seeing from China in other areas as far as the phase one trade deal? I think a couple of different areas that we are seeing a lot of progress in. One is in financial services liberalization. We've seen the equity restrictions on foreign capital in the market increase to 100%. So now foreign securities companies, life insurance companies can own 100% of a company in China. That was restricted to 51% last year. We've also seen progress as well on the intellectual property rights protection pieces. Um, China's just released a new uh, edition of their patent law. They've also done some work around trade secrets protection, which is critically important to the business community as well as to the administration. And I think the area where they've actually made the most progress is on on the agriculture, um, sanitary and phytosanitary requirements, some of the the restrictions that prohibit American agricultural goods from entering the China market. Uh, We've already seen, obviously, the the lift in poultry. We've seen some changes to, to beef imports. We've also seen lifting the restrictions on blueberries, avocados, and a couple of other products. So all of that is, is positive progress and momentum in areas that are really important to the business community. Let's look at the impact of COVID-19, not only the virus itself, but now the rhetoric about, uh, obviously, the Trump administration feels strongly about holding China accountable for the spread of the disease, how it was handled. Uh, how does that impact trade relations moving forward? It certainly complicates them, Um, but again, there is a a candid realization within the administration that while the two sides are are maybe fighting over things like COVID-19 in Hong Kong and Xinjiang, that they need to have a floor under the deterioration of the relationship because having it go into free fall would be good for no one. As one senior official told us recently, uh, even if we're in an adversarial relationship with China, we have to build rules on how we engage in areas like trade. And, and that's, that's how folks are looking at it within the administration. What about the upcoming election? Uh, there was a lot of speculation during the negotiation of the trade deal at one point that China was willing to wait you know, until after the election and see who won. Well, then they went ahead and we got the trade deal done, the phase one part of it. But how does the upcoming election impact this as far as especially China's view on the trade deal? 
it's difficult to say and assess. Um, certainly, the Chinese government knows that there's going to be a presidential election, and that we'll have um, you know a different administration, either a second Trump administration or a Biden administration in November. So, um, it, it's a factor in their considerations. But but again, they want to use Phase One as a stabilizing force in bilateral relations, and too much can happen between July and November that can harm the relationship in very uncertain ways. Chinese love certainty. And again, the the commitments they've made in phase one are things that they want to do anyway that are beneficial for their own domestic purposes. Um, Otherwise, they wouldn't have agreed to do them. So they're going to continue to implement on phase one. I don't think we'll see substantive reductions in, for example, purchases or steps backwards in, in the structural side of the agreement. Um, they're, they're going to reassess uh, when they have the results of the election like the rest of us. China has trade deals with other countries. How how do we fare as far as competition on trade with these other countries? Uh, so, some countries, uh, we exist in free markets, of course. Um, so if, if you're a maker of Australian coal, your product may be of a, a different price than American coal, uh, Brazilian agriculture. Agricultural products, of course, are are very competitive in their growing seasons, are are kind of inverse to ours. Uh, That creates some some market dynamics that are difficult to overcome. So everyone has different advantages depending on where they are in the world. Uh, But we believe, and I think many of our member companies believe, is that the United States is one of the best manufacturing places in the world for manufactured goods and our agricultural products are are terrific. And, you know, it's our hope that China is going to be purchasing more of those things going forward. What are you hearing from your contacts in China as far as where they are in their recovery from COVID-19? And you know what we hear in China is that most of the operations of companies that are manufacturing for example, they're at 80, 90, 95%. So in terms of of production capacity, they're back near to normal. Uh, the challenge I think is more on the demand side externally. Now, now, the majority of Chinese demand is coming domestically now because they are being driven more by a consumption economy as opposed to an export economy, but still a, a big and not insignificant proportion of manufactured goods still travel abroad and internationally. And, and as the rest of the world suffers through the COVID pandemic and demand decreases, that, of course, has a negative impact on China domestically. But again, their, their change and reliance more on a consumption-driven economy and a services economy has has benefited them uh, as the rest of the world slows economically. Sir, yeah, a lot at play here and a lot at stake. Jake, always good to talk with you, get your perspective and the update. Thank you so much. Take care. My pleasure. Bye. Jake Parker, Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Always a tenuous situation, it seems like, between the U.S. and China and uh, still a lot of speculation on purchases for the rest of the this year by China of our ag products and how close will they get to those uh, commitments of the phase one trade deal. Uh, most people not thinking they're going to get all the way there, but how close will they get? That's the question. Up next, we'll talk about markets certainly impacted by what China does. And of course, we'll take a look at the crop conditions, a lot of heat, some places rain, other places not. We're going to talk about all that with Joe Camp, manager of AgriVisor, next on AOA.
Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Let's talk markets with Joe Camp, manager of the AgriVisor. Joe, thanks for joining us. Uh, while most of us focus this time of year on weather and who's getting rain or not getting rain and how hot it is and crop conditions, how closely are the markets looking at that? Or are they still pretty much convinced that uh, we're just on track for a, for a big crop? Thank you, Mike. A good day to join you here with the grain sharply higher trading into this Thursday ahead of a crop report on Friday. It is very much a weather market, so it is a focus on the supply side and what are we going to grow here in the 2020 season. All indications are that we've got the potential for a big crop. We see the crop conditions the way they have been, and we just have some worry starting to to develop as of late, though, about this the stretch ahead of us, warmer, drier, maybe take the top end off of things and, and put some pressure on the market, one that's been bearish for so long. Maybe not a huge surprise to see some short covering by the big spec crowd. Rains have certainly been spotty, haven't they? They have been, yeah, variable. If you get one, it might linger and, and give you a good total, but a mile away, of course, it, it, it might not have fallen at all. And so that's the pattern. Maybe not uh, a total surprise the way weather can be during a growing season. But if that's going to be something that continues, we'll see that there is the potential for a variable into the growing season where some crops can finish really rather well, but some might face some stress that could, uh, you know, start to whittle away what we think about in terms of yield potential and supply overall. So does the acres surprise that USDA gave us a few days ago by lowering those acres, uh, does that make it the market's even more sensitive to uh, weather concerns or are we still, because of the big stocks, still does that lessen the impact of that? I think a little bit of both because we do look at the supply side now and we've got an acres piece of the puzzle. It can still change, but that will be fit, fitting into the balance sheet in a way that reduces that uh, forward projection for ending stocks. It's going to be offset somewhat by what we learned last month about the quarterly inventories being a little bit larger than we had pegged. Uh, but overall, we're starting at a smaller place, a smaller area where now we're left with that missing piece being yield. So tomorrow's report, very much important to see uh, if we have any aggressive start by the government analysts on, on fine-tuning yield, probably a little bit early, and that's what the trade expects is that we won't budge much. So we will see the uh, balance sheet fitting in those beginning stocks from last month's report, the new acres, maybe a slight yield change, and then we'll think a lot about demand too. We're talking with Joe Camp, manager of AgriVisor. How surprised were you with those acres, uh, the acre numbers that came out uh, much lower than anyone ever expected? Yes, much lower than the trade anticipated and surprising to see that it wasn't just corn acres that were lower, but also soybeans. And so we did anticipate some switching. And it wasn't a surprise, I should say, to see that the corn acres were sharply lower from what was seen as a lofty estimate in the March intentions report at 97 million. We thought we'd have some of those acres uh, coming into soybeans, though, we didn't see that in a big way, and it was an overall reduction. So that was certainly surprising, and it has been the catalyst that's kicked off this recent move. 
So we continue to watch China's purchases and see how close they get to those phase one levels here in the last half of the year. How does the markets, how do the markets react to that? I mean, because it's probably not going to be just like one big, huge purchase at a time, probably kind of spread out over the last half of this year. Is it at some point do the markets say, wow, they're not even close or not getting close so they react negatively yeah. or or they look at it and say, wow, looks like they might get there or get pretty close and, and have a more yep. positive reaction. How, how do you think they react to it? It's cautious optimism, but also believe it when you see it in terms of, hey, we're getting these commitments, these sales, these daily flash deals, and they are following what we know about the current environment, which is that the Chinese absolutely do need the soy protein imports. We've got a, a, a shorter inventory now after the big season in Brazil. We've got some recent shifts in currency terms. We've got favorable offers here, and we've got the impetus of that trade deal and China, China trying to stick to it at the moment. And so there is that optimism, but believe it when you see it because these are sales for now, and they need to, to, to shift into shipments. And so we'll continue to watch the daily flash sales and the weekly uh, sales reports, but also keep a close eye on the inspections each week to verify that these beans are actually leaving the country and headed over to China so that they can be consumed. What are you recommending to farmers, Joe? Should they sell into these rallies when we get one like now? We should because we've probably undersold or we've probably been patient for some time, not liking the price, wanting to see better opportunities, and here we are. Uh, much better than we were looking at in terms of market prices a month ago for the row crops. And so it is an opportunity to catch up or to advance forward incrementally, uh, but still think that we can maybe scale up into slightly higher prices, a small window of opportunity here in the next couple of months as we worry about pollination and weather and how we'll finish, but then be prepared and uh, to make some of these sales at the current in the current rallies so that we can hedge our risk come harvest of a, of a good crop coming in and, and weighing on the market at that time. Are we seeing ethanol plants be more aggressive buying corn? They have been because the margins are improving. We see it in the production numbers up in almost every week since uh, the trough. We see that they're still behind ethanol production uh, by about 10 or 12 percent over a year ago. Uh, but, yeah, there's that demand out there, and we see the ethanol market prices rising as they are, maybe some potential for exports, still some upside for uh, consumers getting out and driving more miles. So that's a positive storyline for now. All right, Joe, uh, thanks a lot. Good to talk with you again. Take care. Same as always. Thank you. Take care. Joe Camp, Manager, AgriVisor. That wraps it up for today. Thank you for being with us. Stay safe, everyone. Hope you'll join us again tomorrow here on AOA. We'll talk about uh, the spending bills being worked on in Congress, more commodities being allowed into CFAP, and much more. Join us again tomorrow, if you can, right here on AOA. AOA.